The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's Steve. Um, first, let me thank the Star Foundation for funding these calls. The events of the last several weeks, or one could say the last several months, have been extraordinary in the relationship. So um, we looked for somebody who could really talk about all of it, and uh, we went to uh, Jeff Bader. Jeff, in fact, I was thinking of, of kind of the um, – we call Warren Buffett the Oracle of Omaha. And now that Jeff has moved to Venice, I was thinking of what was a word with a V where I could call – Jeff, something, the something of Venice, the sage of Venice or something. So I call on everybody on this call to come up with some uh, name that will call Jeff going forward. Because as kind of the relationship becomes more turbulent than it's been in many, many years, we really need to turn to people uh, like Jeff who've had experience in the relationship for decades and decades. Uh, you've got his bio, but I should add that he was really there at, the, uh, at the conception. He was working for, when I first got to know him, he was working for Richard Holbrook uh, in the State Department in the 70s when we were working to establish diplomatic relations with China. So he has seen it all, uh, has participated in lots of it, and has had an extraordinary impact on the U.S.-China relations relationship. So we are thrilled to have Jeff talk about kind of the events of the last several weeks. I'll ask some questions. We've got a great audience today. I noticed we, 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 uh, <laughs> we got a huge turnout despite the fact that we sent out this notice on Sunday afternoon. Uh, but Jeff, let me turn it over to the Sage of Venice and have you make some opening comments and then I'll ask some questions. Thanks very much, Steve. Um, I guess that's better than being the Merchants of Venice, which is the only uh, historical <laughs> I reference that, I can think of. You know? <laughs> it's got a certain <laughs> amount of baggage, though. Um, uh, Steve told me some of the names of folks who are on the call, a lot of old friends and a lot of people who I have uh, profound respect for. Um, I thought I would talk a little bit uh, at the outset. I really want to get more into the questions and answers and discussion, but I thought I'd talk a little bit about the the uh, recommendation to the NPC that they uh, uh, terminate presidential, vice presidential term limits, uh, just touch on tariffs and the Leova visit, um, maybe say something just to frame the U.S.-China relationship at the outset, but not really get into depth on that until we get into questions and answers. Okay, first on the, on the presidential, vice presidential term limits decision, um, presumably this means at least a third presidential term for Xi beginning in 2023, and as General Secretary beginning in 2022, it's hard to believe that they will divide the two positions. I think that the uh, media talk of an emperor for life is wildly premature. Uh, I would be very s surprised if he turns out to have a, uh, a life term. Uh, uh, I think that underestimates the dynamism uh, and turbulence of Chinese society. Um, Perhaps you can get through a third term, but beyond that, I think it's highly speculative. Uh, this decision essentially upends Deng Xiaoping's uh, system of checks and balances with Chinese characteristics, which uh, imposed a uh, norm of age limits on party, uh, party leaders and term limits on top state leaders. 
it was uh, a way of creating a rotation of leadership uh, in a party dictatorship, a system that's essentially unknown in other dictatorships. And it was a response by Deng and other party elders to the uh, abuses of the Mao period. Uh, so that has now been essentially thrown out. Uh, the the old system, or the current system, uh, has also served to force other party and state figures to retire below the top uh, leaders uh, on, and on the grounds that if the leaders uh, left their positions, the low-ranking people couldn't claim the privilege of staying on. Uh, I would say that's all in jeopardy now. Uh, they, uh, you know, this one decision about two positions uh, really throws the whole thing up in the air about um, uh, age limits at all levels. So what does this mean for transition of leadership? Um, transitions in China have been basically at least outwardly smooth since uh, Jiang Zemin took over. Uh, I think we cannot assume going forward that they will be smooth. Uh, why did she do this? Is this a sign of strength or weakness? I, I, I'd be interested in what the views of others are. To me, it's a sign of strength and weakness. It's a sign of strength in the sense that I don't think that um, uh, Hu Jintao uh, or Jiang Zemin uh, could have pulled this off. Uh, so uh, I think with all of the positions that Xi Jinping has accumulated, leadership of uh, basically every organization that's been created, every institution that's been created over the last few years, uh, plus the anti-corruption campaign, uh, has strengthened him, but uh, I also don't think that this is the kind of thing that would have been saleable to uh, other party leaders if there weren't concerns about instability, uh, concerns about uh, about over-leveraging in the economy, concerns about the state of economic reform, uh, concerns about corruption. Impact on relations with the United States, uh, I would say not so much. I think this decision by Xi Jinping uh, and the others who support it is about domestic issues and about power. It's not about foreign policy. I don't think that he needs the extra term uh, in order to uh, conduct a strong foreign policy. So I, I don't see that as uh, a major factor. I guess the only other thing I'd say in framing it is uh, it will be very interesting to see in the next nine days what happens to Wang Qishan and uh, Liu He. Uh, I think those are the two most important individuals in terms of relations with the United States. And the, you know, the buzz that Wang Qishan is going to be the vice president has been increasing uh, over the last six months, I guess. Now, most people would consider it more likely than, than not, particularly with this having been named to a position in the NPC. Um, and there seems to be a, a fairly broad consensus that Liu He, having been named to the Politburo, is going to be named vice premier uh, and will be the main economic advisor to, uh, to Xi Jinping. Uh, both of these individuals, of course, have uh, tremendous experience in global markets uh, and in uh, market systems. Um, uh, one, one could perhaps come up with a, uh, an optimistic scenario that says with the, the, the new setup that if these two individuals have a particularly strong voice, that it may give a certain boost to uh, economic uh, reform, Chinese style. But we haven't seen many signs of that in the last five years, so I think that would be... Uh, 
an unlikely result, but one can always hope. Uh, just touching on the other two issues I mentioned at the outset, uh, tariffs, um, the decision on steel and aluminum, there's no surprise there. Everyone knew Trump was going to do this. It's just a question of, of timing. Um, he's intended to do this all along. Uh, I think that some people in the bureaucracy, uh, for what whatever the bureaucracy matters nowadays, uh, did not want to see this in this particular sequence because this is really kind of the, I don't know, the PSATs compared to the, the SATs coming up, which is the 301. The 301 on technology transfer and IPR, that's, that's the big game uh, in terms of China. Um, and at least within the bureaucracy, there was a feeling that since that was a big game, it would be better to try to maintain some semblance of international solidarity uh, with the Japanese and the EU and others uh, before that decision was made. But having reversed the sequence, as it were, um, it's hard to see how there will be much uh, international support for what uh, the U.S., may do on 301. I think it's going to be very much of a unilateral effort, even though the issues are of deep concern to the Europeans and the Japanese. So uh, there really is a sequencing problem here. As you all know, the, the effect of these tariffs on China uh, will be trivial uh, since Chinese uh, exports to the U.S. in both categories are small. China's already under something like 150 anti-dumping and countervailing duty uh, uh, rulings uh, affecting much of the steel and aluminum sector, so there's not much left. Uh, the Lioho visit, um, I, you know, he clearly hoped, number one, to find a counterpart on the U.S. side. Uh, uh, when Yang Jiechi came a couple of weeks earlier, his pitch was, why don't you hold off on the 301 uh, and um, we can resume the comprehensive economic dialogue and through consultations we can address your concerns. That was, of course, a non-starter. Um, I gather President Trump said to, to uh, uh, Yang that we, could, we wouldn't do that, but the Chinese could send someone, uh, and so they sent Liu He. Uh, he had meetings with business community uh, and with think tankers in addition to his government meetings, and, um, you know, he does... He, Made a good pitch, but I don't think it, it affected the uh, uh, the trajectory that the administration is on. The 301 isn't technically due until uh, decision isn't due till August, but people I speak to, I'm sure people you speak to, say it's coming much uh, much sooner than that. Uh, and finally, I just, just offer a framing thought on the overall uh, relationship. Uh, about which I am more concerned than I've been in a while. I think there are three three elements to it that uh, are uh, deeply troubling. Number one is on the political security side. We have a. I'm just looking at it from the U.S. perspective for a moment. From the Chinese perspective, there are other things to say, but we have a national security strategy and a national defense strategy document, which pretty clearly identify China. Uh, as a, uh, a rival, as a competitor, uh, uh, as a security threat. Uh, and they don't say very much about areas of potential cooperation. So that's a, a rebalancing of the relationship uh, uh, 
in a way that's different from predecessors. Uh, number two was the report by USTR to the Congress on Chinese economic practices. Uh, the bottom line of that was that the uh, China is basically an economic, uh, an international economic predator. Uh, that its behavior is predatory and its size uh, and impact on the international economy uh, is of a different order than other countries in the past uh, who have behaved in predatory fashion, uh, and that the decision to admit them to the World Trade Organization back in 2001 on the terms that uh, prevailed uh, was a mistake, um, the implication being that this has to be uh, turned around in some fashion. So those are two basic government documents, but the third area, at least as much concern to me, is... Um, the so-called Chinese influence campaign uh, in the United States. We don't really have a, a U.S. government document on that yet. We have a tremendous amount of punditry and expert commentary in the media uh, about the threat that is supposedly posed by um, uh, Chinese influence campaign in the United States, whether it's in universities or think tanks or with uh, uh, business. Um, what we did have was uh, FBI Director Chris Ray's comments in response to a question in a hearing from, I guess, Senator Rubio saying that uh, these Chinese, uh, Chinese uh, unofficial presence on campuses and elsewhere uh, raised uh, lots of difficult questions for counterintelligence and that he viewed it as a uh, comprehensive threat. <clears throat> I think sooner or later we'll see a, a government document on that. So you've got so three areas uh, where the U.S. government seems to be going in a different direction than it's gone in the past. Now, of course, there are ample reasons uh, uh, in terms of Chinese behavior uh, for some of these areas. There's certainly real issues in all cases, and perhaps we can talk about that. But, uh, but I think that the U.S. government statements we've seen so far uh, lack nuance and lack subtlety, and the um, it's been frustrating to me as someone who's been involved in the relationship for, I don't know, 40 years to see this sort of mad rush by commentators to throw out everything that's been done in the last 40 years as uh, based on uh, illusions uh, about some mythical convergence between the U.S. Uh, and China, which, frankly, none of us uh, subscribe to. Uh, I'm not sure how this became conventional wisdom that there was... Uh, uh, convergence was the foundation of U.S. policy. It never was, uh, but that's now the uh, conventional wisdom in the media. I think I'll stop there and uh, open it up to Steve and wherever you want to take it, Steve. Jeff, incredibly articulate. I mean, that was really, I think, you in, in, a, in a, a quick tour of the relationship, you really hit on all the critical issues. In fact, what we decided is initially we were going to make this off the record. I think that's so valuable and so important the way you framed it. It's on the record. So folks should, be, should feel free to use this uh, however they see fit, including in, in publications. How have the Chinese responded to the national security strategy. First, let's talk about the national security strategy and the national defense strategy where, you know, the Defense Department is saying that the priority for our expenditures are to uh, 
deter or defeat our strategic competitors who are in the document China and Russia. Yeah, I think uh, that we haven't seen much of a Chinese government reaction so far. We've seen Chinese media reaction and Chinese think tankers. Um, I mean, a lot of these people have said for years that they think that uh, the U.S. has a policy of containment towards China. Uh, Sometimes they've talked about a two-handed U.S. policy, one of containment and the other of engagement. So uh, in that sense, it's, I, th- I think a lot of these folks, you know, the, the think tankers and the uh, opinion makers in China that, that we all know and deal with, uh, they'll, their reaction will be kind of aha. But I don't think it has a, you know, we knew it all along, but I don't think that it has a uh, profound immediate impact. I don't think it produces a tit for tat. I think what it does produce is um, they're thinking about their strategic uh, posture. They're thinking about their you know, their nuclear and missile arsenal. Uh, they're thinking about their force projection capabilities, about their military budget, uh, about their uh, exercises in the region. I think it, it affects their, uh, their long-term uh, approach uh, to uh, strategic issues. You've sat through the drafting of these national security documents and kind of, I guess, watch the national defense documents being being drafted. What do you think went into this equivalence between Russia, who has, you know, annexed Crimea, who has undermined U.S. elections, and China, which has behaved poorly, but I think in the real world, nothing close to what Russia has done. How do you think that kind of emerged from the drafting? Well, a couple of thoughts. First of all, we've always had these documents in the past, um, those national security strategy documents <clears throat> uh, in the Obama administration, the Bush administration, and I don't think I'm revealing a deep secret to say that um, they were drafted, um, they were sometimes read the first day, and then people tended to forget about them, um, which I think is not altogether a bad thing. Uh, but they are used by different agencies as justification uh, for things that they're doing. They tend to be drafted by uh, a small number of people. This administration is not the most coordinated in history, put it mildly, so I don't know what kind of an interagency operation, uh, if any, there was that pulled this thing together. I know that uh, there's one individual at NSC who's said to be the, uh, the primary drafter of it. Um, I think that the Russia-China uh, pairing, that probably has to do with the thinking of the drafter or of others around the drafter uh, about the, um, I guess there's a couple of ideas that are prevalent in this administration and more broadly. Uh, One is that we have returned to the age of great power uh, rivalry uh, after uh, uh, illusions in the post-collapse of the Soviet Union period uh, that we're at the end of history and that now we're looking at uh, great power rivalry, and of course the two great powers out there are Russia and China. Um, I think the other half of that thinking uh, is that uh, the notion that there are powers that seek to overthrow or dramatically revise the international order. Uh, now that's a kind of a 
unusual position for this administration, since this administration uh, hasn't shown you know great interest. You're not kidding. Uh, uh, I'm trying to pick my words. They haven't shown great interest in the international order. Okay, but I, you know, ever since Woodrow Wilson, that notion runs through pretty much all U.S. foreign policy thinkers, even if it's not, even if it's alien to Donald Trump. Uh, I think that people in his NSC and elsewhere in his administration. I still have to absorb that way of thinking um, the the, the uh, international order or the liberal international order uh, may be under threat or is under threat, and that Russia and China are the two uh, greatest potential challengers to it. So I think if you take those two things, Steve, that takes it away from the, uh, the question of was China's behavior as bad as Russia's, which it clearly is not. Um, but in conceptual terms, uh, there's a, a basis for pairing them. But it, it just, I don't, you know, one could, I, again, I think Chinese behavior in a lot of areas is 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 truly, uh, you know, bad for the United States. However, to brand them a revisionist power seems to me just beyond the pales. And I think what we jokingly said is absolutely right, which is, you know, we withdrew from the Paris Accords. We're not a member of UNCLOS. You know, the Chinese are leading the Paris Accords. They're, uh, you know, they are, even though they didn't follow the arbitral tribunal uh, decision, they are, um, you know, a member of UNCLOS. It's just, it's so, why would one interpret AIIB and the Silk Road Front and BRI as attempts to overthrow the world order? Well, I agree, Steve. I mean, I, I think what the Chinese is doing is the Chinese are trying to assert a greater role for themselves uh, in the existing world order and to create some parallel uh, institutions which are not hostile to the uh, international order. I think the one area where they have acted contrary to international norms is, is South China Sea. Uh, right. And I, I don't see that as a Chinese assault on international norms so much as a Chinese assertion of a national security interest uh, in its neighborhood where it's going to uh, act in defiance of international norms. Uh, but I don't think it's part of a more general uh, Chinese determination uh, to overthrow uh, the international system. Of course, their economic behavior causes all kinds of problems uh, for companies, many of which I'm sure are on the line here. Uh, but but they, they frame their uh, their position in terms of the uh, existing order and then and then nibble away or or defy uh, the requirements but they they ha they are not setting up uh, an alternative system uh, right. so I think I agree with you entirely so let's touch on the the USTR report to the Congress and then I'll open the floor to questions like on the establishment of diplomatic relations you were there at the inception of China's WTO entry into the uh, China's entry into the WTO the report as you fairly summarized states unequivocally that we erred in allowing China to enter the WTO on the terms that we did do you agree why not well it's hard to do counter history and to say what would have happened if we had just stonewall the Chinese and say you're not getting in. I mean, the world's uh, second largest or largest economy, um, what would have been the impact of uh, keeping them out of the global trading system 
uh, would, would that have produced you know, better behavior on the part of the Chinese? Uh, I don't think so. Um, of course, the Chinese were already benefiting uh, from MFN uh, and from low tariffs uh, in the developed world at the time of the WTO accession. The WTO accession was not about opening Western markets to China. It was about opening Chinese markets to the U.S. So there's a, there's a misunderstanding there. That said, I think, you know, and I've written about this, I, I think that the Chinese and all of us do need to sort of step back and take a look at uh, what's happened since 2001 when Chinese were admitted. The Chinese were admitted as kind of a hybrid uh, of developed and developing country. Uh, and they made uh, uh, the, co- the commitments that the business community and the agricultural committee at the time wanted. So it had strong support across the board uh, from the, the major uh, manufacturing service and agricultural committees. And I don't think any of us who are involved in it need to apologize for not negotiating a different agreement. That's not where uh, American economic opinion was at the time. But I think we do need to acknowledge that in the 16 years since then, uh, the notion that China is sort of a hybrid developing and developed economy really is, is no longer relevant. Uh, I think that the, 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 what we need is a new awareness on the part of the Chinese, perhaps a new negotiation of some kind. I don't know how one does it. In, it would be hard enough under any circumstances, no less than the age of Trump. But uh, some sort of a negotiation among the major actors uh, in which the Chinese are forced to step up uh, and accept the obligations um, that the Europeans and the Japanese and the United States accept as uh, developed countries in WTO. Now, I don't know how one gets from here to there. That's an implementation challenge, but I think that should be the goal uh, rather than uh, looking back on the achievements of 2001, which I think was real, uh, and preserving it in amber, which I think would be a mistake. Um, so, uh, I mean, that's that's how I see the, the general challenge. Isn't my last kind of question slash statement, and then we'll open the, the phone to participants. Do you think that, kind of, you know, when you read this stuff, doesn't it suggest that the answer to a lot of what the Trump administration uh, is worried about would be a TPP. That TPP would kind of reestablish our alliances, would put us, you know, show to everybody we're in the game in Asia. I mean, it's, it seems like you read all of what they write, and then you kind of, well, the answer is really TPP, or am I crazy? Uh, well, I think, <laughs> yes, it is the answer, and yes, you are crazy. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> of course, is the answer. Um, it was an attempt to set up uh, regional norms, uh, and it was having an impact on the Chinese. Uh, uh, lots of Chinese we spoke to back in 2015 to 2016 were saying that after opposing TPP at the outset, they understood that this might become the new set of best practices, and they, they needed to conform to it, and they looked forward to uh, being brought into it. Uh, so I think it was a, a, a classic mechanism uh, from the pre-Trump era for how you uh, expand trade and get better behavior uh, from uh, bad actors. 
But, you know, look, I mean, the, 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 Trump's attitude on trade is, is pretty clear. I mean, it, Trump doesn't have many convictions uh, or many fixed views. One he clearly has is protectionism. He, he clearly, I mean, you, you can't read his tweets or anything else he says where he talks about how easy it would be to win a trade war and if someone's taking $100 billion from us, we just stop trading with them. Uh, I've heard different versions of that where he's talked to uh, businessmen, perhaps even people on this call, about I don't understand why we can't just stop trading with the Chinese um, uh, for businessmen. And in these conversations, I heard about pushed back rather hard. But you know, he, his views about uh, trade and about deficits uh, are rather those are rather fixed. Uh, and of course, he got elected on the basis of uh, certain states where legacy industries have been. Uh, uh, have done rather poorly, uh, and uh, his political agenda is tied to, uh, to is tied to helping uh, people in those states, mostly in the upper Midwest. Um, so uh, I don't I don't see any uh, turns on trade uh, in the Trump years. I, it, it's just it seems to me this is. This is deep conviction for him. The last thing I'd say about Trump, though, I mean, you know, in talking, in talking to the Chinese from the moment of his election uh, uh, and observing since, uh, it strikes me that um, Trump's views about China uh, are pretty strong on economic issues, uh, but otherwise not so much, uh, that he approaches relationships as we all know, transactionally and uh, substantially on the basis of personal relationships with other leaders. Uh, and clearly, he's developed a good relationship with Xi Jinping. They've been on the phone, I don't know, a dozen times and write letters back and forth. And uh, of all the people that Trump has insulted in his tweets, Xi Jinping has been spared. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, you have someone who... Uh, looks to be ready to tear down the economic relationship. On the other hand, he values his relationship with Xi Jinping uh, and seems not to proceed from a general hostility towards China. So there's, uh, it's, it's a complicated, uh, complicated picture. So it, in a sense, the, the relationship between Trump and Xi creates, it's almost a downside insurance policy if we get into a a trade war, if things deteriorate strategically, they can speak to each other and hopefully get back on the right path. I think so. I, you know, there's one part, we're thinking about this a little bit. One thing that I do worry about, though, I mean, Trump said from early on that he was linking uh, his punishments, as, you, as it were, of China on economic issues to their behavior on North Korea. Hmm? Uh, an overt linkage uh, of the two issues. Um, and uh, he's kind of stuck to that so far uh, in that he's been fairly hesitant in taking kind of major trade actions against China uh, because he's evaluated uh, China's actions on North Korea positively. I mean, he, he, uh, he imposed tariffs on, uh, on what was it, uh, solar panels and 
uh, washing machines, and now there's this steel and aluminum decision, which is, you know, not very hitting China. Um, so, but that's not so much so far. What I worry about is when the 301 hits, and they will, the administration, I think, is going to, at least at the outset, be determined to use every tool available to the president under 301. Uh, tariffs, quotas, investment restrictions, you name it. Um, and uh, if they go down that road, which they probably will start down that road at least, you know, leverage goes two ways. Uh, will Xi Jinping, for his part, say, well, you know, our cooperation on North Korea, uh, you know, you've said to me that, uh, that that's linked to uh, your attitude towards us on economic issues. Well, now you've changed your approach on economic issues. So uh, I don't want North Korea to get nuclear weapons, and I'm still going to uh, work to constrain their behavior. But whether I'm going to be working hand in glove with you, I'm not so sure. I worry about sort of that that that, uh, that linkage being reversed. Can Trump take credit for today's announcement? Uh, about you know the North Koreans willing to talk, should he take I think credit? I think it's a, a number of factors. One of which is that the Trump administration, uh, I think it's done a good job in marshalling uh, international economic sanctions uh, against North Korea. Uh, you know, they're the strongest sanctions we've ever had. We're moving clearly towards. Uh, a total embargo, or pretty close to a total embargo, on uh, North Korea. Now, you know, given Kim Jong Un's behavior at the outset, perhaps any president would have taken the same steps. But Trump happened to be there, and I think that his administration has done a good job uh, in building that uh, international solidarity. I think other factors. Uh, I think he's done a good job with Xi Jinping uh, in bringing Xi Jinping along. Uh, he's done it in part by uh, persuading Xi Jinping that, that uh, Trump might contemplate an attack on North Korea, which Xi Jinping obviously does not want, and China would uh, uh, be a Chinese nightmare. Uh, and I think that uh, unlike previous presidents, this president's willingness to take military action in North Korea probably is uh, given some credence. Uh, mm-hmm. in uh, in Beijing, perhaps in Pyongyang as well. Uh, I think, additionally, the Japanese and the South Koreans, uh, I think, have, a lot, have had a lot of impact on the behavior of China. Um, all the talk in Japan and South Korea about uh, developing nuclear weapons, uh, about developing preemptive capabilities, about strengthening their... Uh, their defense posture. Uh, I think this has had an impact on China because uh, you know, obviously China does not wish to see either of them go nuclear. Uh, so, I, you know, leaving aside uh, Trump's uh, threat to withdraw from chorus, which obviously is counterproductive, uh, and the, the, I don't know how to evaluate the tweets which you know, it, at this point, how much are they believed? The, you know, the threats of war. Uh, you know, the, there was the, the, the theory of uh, the crazy head of state going back to Nixon and the Vietnam War, uh, that it 
can induce better behavior on the part of an adversary, and I think there's something to it. Uh, so I, I, I give Trump some credit uh, for for where this stands, but if it creates a, a real challenge going forward. If if uh, President Moon does want to uh, does want to uh, find ways of reducing tensions uh, with the North, uh, the chances of that running afoul of where the Trump administration wants to go uh, and an overt uh, break between the two uh, is a real risk. Lynn, if we can open to um, the participants in the call who would like to ask Jeff a question. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone telephone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone telephone. And our first question comes from John Chin with BlackBerry. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Um, thank you. Uh, thank, uh, thank you, Jeff and Steve, for putting this together, and Happy New Year. Um, I have one comment and a, and a quick question. And the comment is that you know the, the reaction of China to everything that Jeff was referring to actually concerns me a bit um, because it almost feels like that they're starting to make us kind of or have an indifferent attitude towards us. And it is, it, is, it is probably not coming from the leaders and the elite, but it's coming from people. And that's the same reason why President Xi thinks that he would be able to continue his, um, uh, his role um, by re, 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 rewriting the so-called constitutions over there. But so, that, so meaning that we probably as a committee should get deeper into the grassroots than just think tank or professorships and all that, who thinks extremely logically where engagement is the most important thing. Anyway, moving alongside, I mean, moving away from that point uh, or related, the question is, given, um, Jeff, given you you mentioned about the containment versus engagement, I'm wondering, is there any leadership in the administration today that that we could help connect with that may have a chance on improving our engagement posture between the two countries. Uh, John, first of all, thanks for the comments. And I mean, what, I just if I can make a comment on your comments, uh, I, I mean, one of the things that's been most troubling in the last year has been the erosion of the American image uh, abroad, generally and specifically in China. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, the United States has always been an inspirational power, uh, even mm-hmm. if our government-to-government relations with countries like China go through ups and downs. The, uh, the people-to-people connection and the inspirational power has always been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I worry that with the current attitudes we're seeing in the U.S. of uh, hostility and, as I mentioned, the, this uh, campaign against the influence campaign and what that means for Chinese and the Chinese students in the United States and even for Chinese Americans, uh, I wonder if that uh, positive image uh, is, is as strong as it used to be. I'm sure it's not. You can just look at the numbers and see that. Mm-hmm. Um, the question, I'm sorry, John, um, the, the question is... Um, well, anybody who, who, who in the administration that we could... Oh, yeah, in the administration. Okay. I, I think 
that's a real challenge because you know Trump. Look, Trump didn't exactly have his pick of the the best brains of the Republican Party since most Republicans, national security and foreign policy people, uh, signed never Trump letters or just wouldn't go into the administration. Mm-hmm. So he's got uh, a large number of people that really don't have much background in China. Um, and uh, it's hard to know uh, exactly uh, how and where to connect. I mean, I think that at the, you know, at the, 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 the senior below cabinet level, um, my impression just from meetings is there are some decent people. I think that people like the Assistant, Se- Assistant Secretary designated of State uh, for East Asia, Susan Thornton, is very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Matt Pottinger. Uh, at NSC uh, is knowledgeable and is uh, doing a good job. Uh, I think uh, Randy Shriver uh, over at NSC, you know, he worked for Rich Armitage for years, and uh, so he's uh, he's a serious adult. I think that those, you know, at at that level, uh, you have uh, expertise and uh, kind of the right approach. Uh, above that level, unless less clear um, I, I think you know Secretary Mnuchin uh, has some experience in China and seems to be uh, a refra- restraining force on some of the more extreme economic uh, trade positions that are advocated elsewhere in the administration um, he seems to be fairly secure in this relationship with President Trump so he might be uh, uh, might be someone to uh, uh, maintain uh, strong relations with um, uh, other key actors. I mean, the National Security Advisor doesn't have much background in China, and of course, reading the papers, one doesn't know how much longer he may be there. Um, mm. uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of State Tillerson, uh, his public statements about China, I think, have mostly been on the mark. They've been mostly good, except I thought his speech on. The Belt and Road Initiative thought in Machiavellian terms that had, nothing, had little to do with the real objectives of the Belt and Road Initiative. But by and large, I think that Tillerson has been a, a moderating force uh, on China policy. And I think that you know General Mattis is mostly a, a CENTCOM Middle East guy, uh, but he's a, a fast learner. Um, he's mostly focused on, on Korea, of course, uh, but he, you know, he's a very smart guy. He obviously understands the importance of the relationship with China in terms of getting the right count outcome on North Korea. So I think there are uh, there are some people uh, that you can connect with who uh, are open-minded. Okay. Thank, thank you. Thanks, John. Great. Next question. Our next question comes from Jeffrey Wasserstrom with UC Irvine. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi. Yeah, this was a great presentation. I'm really grateful to it. Um, I have a question. I, I, I agree with you about the concern with this sort of new conventional wisdom being that somehow we were all expecting a magical kind of convergence. But I do think something has shifted, in, and mm-hmm. for different people it's been different years when you would, mm-hmm. you would underline it. But I think the term limits really make a way to underline it, which was a sense that whatever misgivings we had, there were signs that some of the things going on in China were moving in what would be for those who cared about um, freedom, liberty, in various ways, moving somewhat in the right direction. 
and that there was a reason to encourage that, including through sort of symbolic gestures that, talk, that played up to um, the Chinese leadership. And by underscoring this, I think the, the fact that that sense of directionality is gone, I'm wondering, and I can't expect it, we can't expect it from the White House, but if, to the extent we can urge people, I just wonder how you would react to this, to the extent that we can urge people when thinking about what kind of um, symbolic treatment to give Xi Jinping or representatives of Xi Jinping when they, when they come abroad, if we kind of ask the question, and it's not a perfect analogy, but would we be as celebratory in the words we use, would we be as kind of gracious in the symbolism if it were Putin or some other figure that we thought of as an illiberal strongman figure? Would we give the same kind of um, the same kind of deference and sort of photo ops that are so usable back in China? And I'm thinking about largely corporate figures. What um, the kind of lever the kind of um, play that the Chinese uh, propaganda machine could make out of Tim Cook's comments when he were when he was in China? Something that's not about fear mongering and demonizing, but stops short of the kind of um, symbolically useful pats on the back that are sometimes still being given to a regime that really is not moving in the right direction. Uh, Jeff, I think that's a great comment, and I, I think it's a, you know, that's a subject for a, a long, a long, long discussion. I mean, first at the outset, I'd say I agree with you that there has been a general sense for decades of, uh, of China moving in, in the right direction, um, I think that for many of us, 1989 was an important turning point uh, in that sense, if you were talking about a broad convergence. Uh, I mean, the point I would make about a lot of the commentary, which I think is wildly misguided, uh, is that uh, the notion of domestic convergence in China uh, with the United States was never a foundation of U.S. policy. That, mm-hmm. that was... I think some of us, many of us observers of China, had different views on the degree to which China was, quote, converging or was changing uh, in the face of modernization. And I think that my own view is that, you know, those of us who knew China in the 1970s uh, and saw China again after 2000, the changes were were enormous. Changes were unbelievable, uh, arguably as much as any country in history. Uh, But that doesn't mean... Uh, convergence and convergence was never the basis of U.S. policy. The, the basis of U.S. policy was China's international behavior uh, and uh, trying to get China of the 1960s, which was a menace to the international community, uh, to be, a, in Bob Zellick's words, uh, a responsible stakeholder and a constructive force in the international community. So I, I, I just uh, I, I agree with the way you framed it, uh, although I would not uh, accept and you weren't suggesting the notion that this was the basis of U.S. policy. It was the basis of, I think, a lot of popular conceptions about China. Now, how should we talk about Chinese leaders? I, I mean, you know, when I, I was in U.S. government under a succession of American presidents of both parties, and um, in the government, we were always pretty circumspect about how we talked about China uh, and how we talked about Chinese leaders. I'm sure you can find exceptions, but, uh, the, you know, the idea of kind of a, a kowtow to um, the greatness of this Chinese leader or that Chinese leader or a suggestion that they were uh, uh, 
you know, popular or a tribune of the people. Um, that, you know, that was just not part of our vocabulary. Uh, now, business people are in a bit of a different position. Um, and I can understand how some business people um, may go uh, a little further. Um, certainly, I think some of the, the recent statements by companies, which I won't name, but you all know them, in response to some of the Tibetan Dalai Lama uh, uh, episodes, I think were pretty over the top and were pretty appalling, frankly. Uh, and I, I think that we all <clears throat> we all should try to be measured uh, in our comments. But you know, but let's say you know, the, the first thing you learn in dealing with China uh, is how uh, sensitive they are to protocolary considerations, how sensitive they are uh, to face considerations. Uh, and the operating principle or linchpin of strategy for many years was you could get the Chinese uh, to do more on the substantive side if you were going to be accommodating on the protocolary side. Uh, and that, that, I think, was a correct, uh, a correct strategy. But, you know, so that doesn't mean, as I say, kowtowing, but it does mean treating them with, with respect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how you where you draw that line? That's obviously for each each company to decide. Thanks. Next question. Our next question comes from Earl Carr with Momentum Advisors. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Thank you, uh, Jeff. Thanks for a very fascinating uh, and insightful discussion. Uh, my my question is more about how do you perceive and analyze. Sino-Taiwan economic relations, and where do you see current U.S. policy uh, impacting those, those economic ties? Like, if I, if I was a multinational company thinking of doing business in Taiwan, what are some of the geopolitical risks I should be thinking about? Well, you know, the U.S. government has gone kind of up and down on that, down through the years. I, I show my age here. When the first issue first arose in the mid-1980s, uh, the U.S. was strongly supportive of the opening of economic trade and investment ties between uh, Taiwan and the PRC under Zhang Jingguo. Uh, and that remained our position for, I don't know, a couple of decades. Then uh, when Chen Shui-bian was president of Taiwan, uh, he first began voicing wariness uh, about excessive dependence on uh, the PRC. Uh, economically began talking about free trade agreements with minor countries here and there. Um, and some of his backers or friends in the United States have picked up that theme. Uh, and we started hearing uh, uh, words of discouragement about development of Taiwan PRC economic ties. Um, then they built up again, obviously, in the Ma Ying-jeou period and now in the Tsang uh, one presidency, they're they're more problematic. You know, it, it just seems to go like on a seesaw, depending upon uh, who's in power. Um, you know, I, there are people on this line, people like John Chun, who know much more about the subject than I do. But clearly, in the in the IT sector, uh, the links between Taiwan and the PRC are you know extremely extensive. Uh, the notion that uh, that uh, you know the servers or uh, uh, semiconductors or you know, so the major elements of the IT industry that Taiwan uh, could operate independently of the mainland. That's an, a non-starter. Um, 
And, uh, but, you know, but we have consideration now of a reform or revision of the CFIUS, uh, law in the United States. I think it's highly likely there will be a revision of CFIUS, uh, which the, the purpose of the change is going to be directed at China, obviously. Uh, and, um, businesses in Taiwan that have operations in the mainland that uh, potentially could run afoul of CFIUS uh, uh, guidelines if they're looking at investments in the U.S. I mean, that's an area which I think businesses need to keep a keep a close eye on. Um, I, you know, I just the future of political evolution of Taiwan is pretty unpredictable. Um, I mean, one's numbers have plummeted, but the Kuomintang's numbers haven't gone up. Uh, so, uh, you know, does what comes next uh, mean uh, that economic ties get uh, strengthened? They haven't really been slashed dramatically on the Tsai one The aviation ties are still very strong, and most of the investment ties have uh, continued in place. Um, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a a very hard question, um, and uh, I think in the long term one has to foresee that the economic and commercial ties between Taiwan and the PRC are more likely to increase than decrease. Thank next you. Question. Our next question. Our next question comes from an individual, Richard Selden. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Jeff, thank you very much for your very interesting and insightful uh, comments. I wanted to ask a question about uh, North Korea, and that relates to coordination between China and Russia uh, about North Korea. It seems to me, particularly in the background of Putin's statement recently about uh, attacking anybody who would attack friends of, of, of Russia, that possibly part of that statement related to Trump's threats toward North Korea. Are uh, Chinese and Russian positions uh, about cooperation with the United States uh, aligned, or are there different interests involved that makes Russia a little less likely to cooperate? Um, I mean, during my time in the administration, China and Russia coordinated pretty closely on North Korea policy, mainly at the United Nations. and it was part of a broader uh, strategic partnership between Russia and China to check U.S. influence, whether it was in North Korea or Iran or Syria or wherever. Um, China's always had was of magnitude more interest uh, in North Korea than Russia. So China, so Russia has generally deferred to Chinese interests and preferences. Uh, in uh, North Korea, there are some some differences. Uh, you know, China has been pretty cooperative in terms of cutting off the oil flow, uh, flow of crude oil. I mean, the, the last UN resolution talked about like an 89% drop in in crude oil uh, exports to uh, to North Korea, and that's mostly from China. Um, the uh, the Russians, I think, opportunistically have been looking to fill the void 
uh, as the Chinese have been cutting back their uh, their oil exports uh, to North Korea. I think it's as much about money as it is about strategic uh, uh, interests. I, I, you know, Putin, I think, is he's more of a uh, he views these things more as a troublemaker, frankly, I think, than uh, than she. I think she is trying to calculate what's China's national interest, uh, what are the risks of the North Korean implosion, and what are the risks if he is not aligned with the United States to China's interests. Whereas uh, Putin, I don't think, sees the same equities uh, uh, in the North Korea relationship. I think he thinks he sees it as an opportunity to tweak the United States. And <laughs> uh, I can imagine at some point he might uh, come to Trump and say, I can be helpful to you if you'll, on uh, North Korea, if you'll be helpful to me on Ukraine. But I don't think that would be terribly persuasive. I don't know about Trump and Putin. That's a whole other subject for a different call. But um, I, I think that Xi Jinping and China's influence on North Korea is so much more uh, important uh, than Russia's. The main thing we just have to watch is make sure Russia doesn't fill the, the void in oil shipments. Thank you. Next question. Our next question comes from Frank Kell with USCX Incorporation. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Thank you, Jeff and Steve. My question goes back to your remarks earlier about FBI Director Chris Wray and his recent uh, uh, comments on the tens of thousands of Chinese students and scholars at American universities as if each one was a candidate to be a spy. Um, our colleagues in the Committee of 100 came out with a statement noting that that connects to old fears and bugaboos and uh, racist uh, attitudes towards the Chinese. And they have recently joined uh, with other Asian American groups to protest that. Uh, I'm thinking that uh, right-minded people, fair-minded people, uh, would want to combat that kind of thinking, especially since so many of these students and scholars are going to come into our society as contributors to... Okay, Frank, we're running out of time. Right. So what's, what's your thought about uh, how we should look yeah. upon yeah. FBI Director uh, uh, who is not... I saw the, uh, I saw the Committee 100 statement, which I thought was a very good statement. Uh, and I think that people like you and others on this call who feel the same need to be much more vocal. Uh, if you look at the media lately, pretty much every article on this subject uh, talks about the Chinese, quote, campaign of influence uh, and talks about uh, American institutions being bought by the Chinese or being penetrated by the Chinese. Uh, I think it's a, a very dangerous uh, mindset. Um, uh, there are many dimensions to it. Um, look, if, there, if there's classified research on a campus, and there are on some campuses, campuses have ways of segregating that particular operation uh, from people who don't need clearance. Uh, but the idea that you know, Chinese students can't take a course in theoretical physics because they might pick up something 
uh, that would be useful when I get home in a, uh, a dual-use program. Uh, you know, Silicon Valley in the United States would not exist uh, without foreigners. Uh, and th- this is part of our broader, uh, the broader movement in the United States now towards building walls, uh, keep people out. I think it's profoundly dangerous. Uh, we all know there are problems. That, you know, the Chinese don't help us because obviously when a lot of these people go home, the Chinese Ministry of State Security is going to interview these, these people uh, and they're going to try to guide some of them uh, into uh, actions uh, that are contrary to our interests. We know that. Uh, but we've always been big enough and open enough to feel that we could deal with that uh, and deal with the subversion and the espionage when it happens uh, and not shut down, uh, just shut the gates entirely. I mean, that's how the Soviet Union acted. That's how the Chinese acted until 1978 and still act to some degree. It's just not the United States, so it's not the direction we should be going. Thank you. We are unfortunately out of time, but Jeff, thank you so much. That really was was fantastic. And now you've, we will now refer to you as the Sage of Venice, since I didn't hear any any alternative suggestions during this call. But Jeff, thank you so much. It was just fantastic. Thanks, Steve, and thanks to all my friends on the call.